Chapter Nine of Find the Woman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Find the Woman by Gillette Burgess. Chapter Nine. The Saint Paul Building, wherein John Fenton discovers a dead body, regains possession of certain jewels, and is besought to take the place of a titled impostor. His mind was busy with her as he walked down Broadway. Belle Charmion. Surely she was worth conjecture. Belle Charmion. The two glimpses he had had of her, the few words they had exchanged, had fanned the flames of fancy which her portrait had first ignited. Her whimsical face, her graceful expressive hands, her lithe slim figure, something in the quality of her warm fresh olive skin made him feel actually weak when he thought of her. He confessed to himself that he was pretty far gone. Belle Charmion, Belle Charmion. He wanted her more than anything on earth, but meanwhile he had to go through what he had planned to do. A wild goose chase, no doubt, but he would follow it to a finish. He finally reached the entrance of the St. Paul building, a twenty-one-story pile of granite carved into Romanesque shapes, and had turned in to enter when he saw a man waiting in a doorway he had just passed. Fenton stopped and took a second look at him, a muscular man in a brown derby hat and a shepherd's plaid suit. There was no possible doubt of it. It was the same man he had first seen in Sheffle Hall with the outline of a revolver bulging from his hip pocket. It was the same man he had caught a quick glimpse of in the lobby of the Hotel Plaza. Here was another puzzle. Was he being followed, and if so, why? A mad night, indeed. How would it end? He went in, struggling with this new problem, looked at the directory table on the wall, and found the name of Nallery and Company. Opposite was the number of the firm's office, 1376. Only one of the three elevators was running. In the car, a negro boy was sitting on a stool, reading Middlemarch. Fenton entered. Thirteenth floor, he said, and the boy reluctantly closed his book, slammed the door, and pulled back the controller. The elevator shot up. Round on the left, said the boy, as Fenton emerged, and the car descended. Fenton walked round a corner of the corridor and came point-blank to a door painted with the name of Nallery and Company, Mining Brokers. There he knocked. He had no idea what he should do when the door was opened. He had made no plan. He would make up his mind what part to play as soon as the situation was found. Meanwhile, as he waited, he thought he heard a hurried sound of feet, the soft click of a closed door. He listened now more carefully. Still there was no answer. He knocked again, louder. All was silence. Then angry at the delay, wishing to bring matters to a crisis, he turned the handle opened the door and walked in. He found himself in a small office, part of which was shut off by a wooden railing. Behind this were a couple of roll-top desks, a letter-press, a typewriter, a filing cabinet, and other ordinary pieces of cheap office furniture. There was nobody there, however, and so seeing a door in one wall, marked private, Fenton went through the gate, strode up to it, and knocked with determination. Still no answer. He hesitated for a moment. It was carrying things rather far to force himself in this way. 
but he wanted to come to an end of the adventure as soon as possible he knocked again then impatient at the silence boldly opened the door he saw a carpeted room with a single roll-top desk and several chairs two of these were overturned and between them supine on the floor was the body of a man lying in a puddle of blood fenton stood for a moment in the doorway fascinated by the awfulness of it he was unable to move it seemed unreal impossible like a wild dream his first impulse was to stifle his exclamation of alarm shut the door and make his escape as quietly and quickly as possible next despite his sick feeling of horror despite a dominant fancy that this thing was not could not be true came the realization that he should go to the rescue of the man and give him aid if it was not already too late he forced his will to move his body stepped forward and knelt beside the form one look into those open staring eyeballs told him that the man was dead but as he looked at the pale face more deliberately the horror gave way to pathos the dead man was wonderfully beautiful picturesque even poetic by his crisp curling hair the finely moulded features the width of his forehead the small delicate moustache the body might have been that of edgar allan poe the skin was as fair as a child's the lips sensitively parted showed perfect teeth the slender hands were like a woman's gracefully expressive in their relaxed gesture all this would have prevented the corpse seeming dreadful had not that oozing red spot upon the shirt-front told a tale of murder fenton drew down the lids over the glassy eyeballs with scarcely a feeling of revulsion and then slowly arose still held by the potent fascination of death then his eyes wandered about the room and stopped at a grey ooze leather bag some little distance from the body he walked over to it and picked it up he pulled it open and received a new sensation the bag was crammed with jewels for the second time that night he was in possession of the brewster collection that fact decided him whatever had happened in this dreadful office it was his plain duty to take the jewels and deliver them as he had promised his own safety and theirs demanded that he make his escape without delay there was no knowing when some one might come it would be dangerous disastrous to be discovered there with the corpse buttoning the bag under his coat therefore he gave one swift look at the dead man and went into the outer office here he paused a moment to consider it was improbable that any other exit than the front door of the building would at this time of night be open the safest way if indeed not the only way would be to go boldly down the elevator as he had come up he must take his chance at any rate a glimpse into the mirror showed his face a deathly white he took a towel from the washbowl and rubbed his cheeks violently till the colour had returned if he could only efface the horror in his heart as easily the image in his eyes had faded so that now the door was closed he could hardly believe 
that what he had seen was true but a feeling of faintness warned him that the shock had gone deep he waited a moment for his weakness to pass then summoning all his resolution left the office and rang the elevator bell he scarcely dared look at the elevator boy as the car descended the air seemed close and stifling without a glance to right or left he walked unsteadily out the great doorway on the sidewalk the night breeze revived him and he started to walk briskly north along broadway at each step his courage and his relief increased he shook off his obsession pacified his conscience with the thought that there was nothing he could have done and turned his thoughts to planning his next move in the curious game of chance which he seemed destined to play that night here he was again with the brewster treasure but again without a cent in his pocket and now still farther away than ever from his destination as he walked along the canyon of high buildings the clocks rang midnight how was he to get up town he had not gone many blocks deliberating this question when he heard a motor-car coming his way behind him it was proceeding slowly a chauffeur driving and a gentleman muffled up in a pepper-and-salt coat in the tonneau he was a little blond man of forty with a patient resigned look a man with a pale careworn face and a lizard's chin his mouth was slightly open he had white eyebrows altogether his face betokened no great strength of will he looked at fenton anxiously as he passed and turned to look again almost as if he intended to speak but didn't quite dare fenton grasped the possibility and hailed the car give me a lift up town he asked the man looked him up and down how far do you want to go he asked almost whining harlem said fenton for some moments the man in the car stared without speaking fenton grew embarrassed he wondered if the bag concealed under his coat showed too plainly but the man finally changed his expression a wan smile spread over his face followed by an expression of timid resolution i'll tell you what i'll do he said if you'll do me a small favor it won't take more than half an hour i'll send you up to harlem in this car afterward anywhere you want to go what is the favor asked fenton get in here and i'll tell you fenton opened the door and entered the man who had invited him was so mild that there could be no great danger to the jewels go on home carl said the stranger but go slowly i want time to talk to this gentleman then he turned to fenton stared at him anxiously for a few moments and then asked can you act what do you mean i'm not an actor of course what i want you to do is to impersonate a hungarian count for about ten minutes fenton gasped me a count in spite of the tremor he was still in he laughed count capricorni the stranger explained i've got to produce him at my house this night and oh if you would do it i'll fit you out with a dress suit and a red ribbon and introduce you to a few guests as soon as that's over you can be taken sick cholera infantum gout epilepsy or housemaid's knee anything you like and then you can go up to harlem what do you say will you please 
Are you talking in your sleep, or what? Fenton inquired. I'm trying to save my sister's reputation, that's all. Perhaps, if you're incredulous, I'd better give you a few details. The gentleman sighed. I think so, too, Fenton replied. This seems to be my night in Arabia, and I might as well do it good. I've already crowded about sixty ordinary years' experience into six hours of this evening. Romance seems to have it in for me tonight. Well, I guess I can stand a little more of it. What's your line? Comedy, tragedy, farce, musical drama, or burlesque? Say, you're not crazy, are you? The stranger seemed anxious. No, are you? Well, sometimes I think I am. I'm a fool, anyway. Perhaps I'd better tell you my story and let you decide. All right, said Fenton, leaning back in the cushions. The stranger folded his arms, scowling ludicrously, and began, My name is Stillwell Morgan. Fenton sat up and looked at him eagerly. Not the Stillwell Morgan, not the nephew of James Pierpont. No, not that one, the stranger replied sadly. And that's the whole story. It's a mighty short one. Fenton grunted. Oh, what I mean, said Morgan, is that that very natural mistake of yours is what's just got me into trouble. Everybody makes that mistake. And thereat he proceeded to tell his tale. Count Capricorni. I have a sister named Marguerite Maganel Morgan. She's part angel, part vassar, and part darned fool. Being her only brother, of course I adore her on six days of the week, and swear at her on the seventh. If you've ever had that kind of a sister, you know. Sisters either run you, or you run them. I'm not ashamed of admitting that Marg runs me. It saves a lot of trouble. Everybody seems to think I'm rich, because my name is Morgan, but I'm not. Oh, well, I make a fair income. Real estate. Wait, I'll give you my card. We live a plain, self-respecting life, uptown in an $85 apartment. That is, we did till a month ago. Ah, well, I wish we lived there now. We had a pretty good-sized bathroom where I could do my pulley weights, and we had a view of the Hudson, only about an inch of it, but I was satisfied. We had a Swedish maid, too, and on Thursdays, Marg made a Welsh rabbit. We're Welsh, you know and I opened the beer. I never drink anything stronger than that. Doesn't agree with me. We were happy and contented. I was, anyway. All I want is to go to a good musical show once in a while, and wear slippers when I'm home. I never had much use for style. I hate those stiff stand-up collars, for instance. I believe in comfort and bathrobes and things. You know, good American habits with no nonsense about them. Marg goes in for the latest thing, but then she's ambitious. So she made me a velvet smoking jacket. I smoke three cigars a day, one after each meal. Well, last month Marg began to fret. She wasn't a bit interested in real estate or musical shows. I'm reading Gibbon's Decline and Fall this winter, and even that seemed to bore her. You see, she's higher-spirited than I am, somehow. She likes a crowd. So, to please her, I said we'd spend a week at Atlantic City, at a real swell hotel. She brightened up right away. I was glad of a week off, too. It would give me a chance to finish up the decline and fall, 
and perhaps I could start in on the anatomy of melancholy. I've never had time to read that. I took a small suite. At first they thought we were a bridal couple, and I nearly died of mortification. But it was worse than that when I found the bellboys thought that we were the Stillwell Morgans, the rich ones. I gave only dime tips, but that didn't seem to convince them. I suppose some rich people are stingy sometimes. Of course I told the clerk all about myself, but people stared at us so I dreaded to go into the dining room. The second day after we arrived at the Buckingham Hotel, I met a nice-looking fellow in the billiard room while I was watching a game of pool. I don't often speak to strangers, but I was so lonesome with no business to do that I offered him a ten-cent cigar, and afterwards we played a game of pool. Oh, not the regular game. I never tried that. It's a bit hard for a beginner. This was that game where you roll the balls from one corner. I beat the stranger two games. Nice fellow, I thought affable you know interested in things i didn't care much for women neither did he we got on beautifully after he left i asked the clerk who he was and the clerk switched round the visitor's book and pointed to a name well i nearly fainted count capricorni and valet budapest there i had been laughing and joking with a real live count when i told marg about it she got awfully excited, sent for the manicure girl, and asked her all about the count. Then she interviewed the telephone girl and the chambermaid. Marg has a way of getting right at things. She's resourceful, by Jove. She told me I must invite the count to dinner, but I said I'd never dare in the world. Now I knew who he was. I'd never seen Marg with men much. I usually go into my room and read when they come. They're so silly. She was a revelation to me now, the way she went at it. She got into my lap and began to fool with my hair, and teased me to introduce her to the Count. I told her how the Count had made fun of American women, and I guess that made her mad. When Marg gets her blood up, she's great. She said that I'd simply have to have him to dinner. I tried to get out of it, and then she began to cry. What can you do when a woman cries? I agreed to let her have her own way. Not that I blamed Marg much. If you'd seen the Count, you would have been impressed. Anyone would. He looked just like a Count. Sort of distinguished-looking. Poetical kind of chap he was. Wide forehead, crisp black curly hair, and a little bit of a mustache. Say, I'll tell you, he looked for all the world like Edgar Allan Poe at twenty-five. What's the matter? He did, really slender hands like a woman's and he used them in a foreign sort of way when he talked then he wore a soft black tie with his evening dress and a broad ribbon on his glasses and some kind of a little red button in his buttonhole i liked him when i got better acquainted i don't mind admitting it i really did marg had only twenty-four hours to get up a costume she sent six or seven telegrams to Faustine on Fifth Avenue and had a hairdresser from Philadelphia. I had to buy a lot of orchids, and we got mother's pearls out of the safe deposit. It cost about four hundred dollars in all, but Marg was happy. The only thing was, I didn't have a dress suit. Marg wanted me to hire one of a waiter, but I drew the line. 
I can be firm when I want to. I hate those hard shirts. The Count came up to our sitting-room, and Marg came in smelling of some sort of cologne she bought for four dollars a bottle. That was the first time she had ever had her hand kissed in the European fashion, except in private theatricals, of course. But it didn't embarrass her one bit. She acted just as if they did it to her every day. Ain't women wonderful? We went down to dinner, with me behind, and when we walked into the dining-room, there was a buzz that you could have heard to the boardwalk. You see, every girl in the hotel had been hot after the Count for a week, and he had never paid any attention to any of them. I was proud of Marg then. Every woman there was hating her like mischief. And you know how that improves a woman's looks. The one they hate, I mean. The Count was languid and aristocratic, and talked to Marg all the time. I didn't have a chance to say much. Marg was awfully animated, though. When we went upstairs somehow I felt in the way, so I took my decline and fall, and went into my room to read. I heard them laughing afterward for an hour and a half. Then, when he left, Marg came in to see me. She told me that she was dead in love with Count Capricorni. And what were we going to do? If he ever discovered we weren't the Stillwell Morgans, she was afraid he'd cut us, and she'd pine away and die. That was how the trouble began. You see, Marg wanted to entertain him in New York, but how could we invite him to our little flat? He'd scorn it. Marg said we'd have to move, and move quick. When Marg decides on a thing, I give up the fight. Just then, Aunt Jane died and we knew that she'd surely leave us some money. Marg figured on a hundred thousand or so, but I doubted it. On the strength of it, however, Marg began to make her plans. She went up to the city next day and rented a suite at Witcherly Court. Ever seen Witcherly Court? It's on Riverside Drive, a French Renaissance pile, Marg calls it with an entrance hall that looks as if it was carved out of different kinds of colored soaps. There is a lot of plush and hall boys and bronze tables and fountains and things when you go in, and a marquee in front. You know the kind. One suite costs $15,000 a year. Marg spent a day in those antique furniture dens on 4th Avenue and got in a lot of Sheraton stuff and Turkish rugs to take the nouveau riche look off. I didn't mind the expense so much, although I was sailing pretty close to the wind by this time. It was the style we had put on that I hated. Of course, it wouldn't do for the Count Capricorni to find us living the bourgeois way we always had. So she got a lot of gowns. I thought they were awfully low-necked and she made me get into a dress suit when the clock struck six every night, whether we had company or not. I tried to learn to drink burgundy, but it's no use. I hate it. Then she got a butler. Ever tried to act natural with an English butler looking at you? You can't do it, unless you're a woman. Women love it. It really seems to stiffen em up. But I always felt shriveled when he was in the room. The Count didn't like ordinary American cooking, so Marg got a chef, and I never had any appetite after that. That Swedish girl we used to have could make grand griddle cakes, but that was all over. We only had stewed up stuff in little casseroles. 
and everything tasted of onions. Marg said she loved his cooking, but I noticed she didn't eat much. But then she was in love, I admit. The Count came several times a week. He seemed to like the place, though I thought by the way he talked it was nothing compared to his castles in Hungary. He used to sit and smoke cigarettes out of a mouthpiece six inches long and tell us about his family. He told us that he was going to come into a whole lot of money when he married. He showed us a little miniature of his mother and another of a young countess his mother was trying to make him marry. That picture got Marg furious. She used to go and order a new hat and two or three new gowns after every time he showed it to her. Well, at the pace we were going, I didn't see how we could last. It was all I could do to pay running expenses, and I had to work downtown almost every night, figuring on new deals to put us through. What with wages and tips and things, at Witcherly Court, I was at my wit's end. Marg said it didn't matter if she only married the Count, because then we'd all have plenty of money, but all the same it worried me. Of course, Marg talked to folks about the Count, and naturally all our friends got pretty curious to see him. She gave several teas, but somehow he never managed to come to any of them. The first time he sent word he was ill, the second he had to go out of town, the third time he promised to come but didn't, and so it went. Her girlfriends began to laugh at her, and then they got nasty. They said she was awfully stingy with her old Count probably afraid that some of them would catch him. Some of them even said they didn't believe she had any count at all. I was kept busy explaining about him and apologizing and everything. Marg felt dreadfully upset about it. Well, one night she came into my room half crying and half laughing and said that the count had proposed to her and she was going to marry him and be a countess and wear a coronet and live in a ruined castle just like in a story-book. Of course, then I knew I was in for it. Her picture would be in the Sunday papers, and perhaps mine, and there'd be reporters and all sorts of things. It made me groan to think of it. Marg just loved it. She decided that she'd have to give a big reception to announce the engagement and introduce the Count. That would stop all gossip, and people would see that we were just as good as the Vanderbilts and Goulds and Astors, and wasn't I proud of my little sister? Well, I was proud enough of her, but I shuddered when I thought of the expense and the publicity and the style we'd have to put on. I only hoped that after it was all over I could get a big sunny room somewhere near 42nd Street and wear my bathrobe and slippers every evening I didn't go to a show. So I went in for it. I sold my mother's pearls and got an automobile because the Count said trolley cars and subways were vulgar. I mortgaged a little farm in Connecticut that had belonged to the family for a hundred years, and Marg hired a footman and a lady's maid and a valet for me. I used to send him on errands all the time to get rid of him, but her maid worked hard. The Count began to call me Stillwell and said, Americans weren't so bad after you knew them well. He also began to talk about my investing in Hungarian mines, and I considered it favorably until Aunt Jane's will was filed for probate. Marg and I were left $250 apiece, 
which I spent for garage expenses, and a portrait of her third husband, which Marg insisted on hanging up in the dining room. It was our ancestral portrait. The Count said he had em by dozens in his castles. We set to-day for the reception, and the Count promised on his honour he'd be there on time to meet all our friends. We invited about three hundred people, but all the week folks have been telephoning to Marg to ask couldn't they bring a friend or two, so that this afternoon, to be on the safe side, I telephoned the caterer to provide for seven hundred guests. Marg insisted on my hiring an empty suite below us for dancing, and got an orchestra and a whole lot of gilt chairs. I figured it out to-day that I was about thirty-seven thousand dollars in a hole up to date. The count had come high, but Marg had to have him, and so long as she was happy and I could keep out of jail, I didn't care. Knowing that it was a love match, and the count wasn't after Marg's money, it didn't matter. I could stand it. That's the way it stood this morning, when I went downtown to my grind. Florists all over the house, men nailing down canvas on the floors, footmen in everybody's way, a lot of extra maids and servants fussing about, and the caterers stewing things in the kitchen. I was glad to clear out and get down to my office where I could be quiet, worked like a Chinaman all day, and tried to forget we were marrying into the nobility. I was so nervous and excited, though, that I couldn't stand eating lunch in a restaurant where I would be likely to meet any of my friends. So I dropped into one of those little cheap quick-lunch ham-and-egg places under the Brooklyn Bridge. I ordered some weak tea and milk toast, and was trying to read the paper when I heard a voice that simply paralyzed me. It was behind a flimsy wooden partition in the kitchen, and it was yelling, Draw one, or something like that. Perhaps it was, Ham and over. Then a waiter in a dirty duck suit came out of the doorway, with about sixteen dishes balanced along his arm, and an apron on. It was the Count Capricorni. Yes, that's right. That miserable waiter was the man that about eighteen servants and six hundred guests were preparing for up at Witcherly Court, and I had spent something like thirty-seven thousand dollars so that he wouldn't be ashamed of Marguerite. Morgan stopped and smiled sadly. I don't think he saw me at all. He turned to put some things on a table, and I bolted without waiting for my lunch. You see how I'm fixed, don't you? I thought that if he did show up tonight so that we would get the reception over with, I could get rid of him tomorrow, forever. But he didn't appear. Fenton shook his head. No, he answered, and I don't think you'll ever see him again. I guess he's done for, poor fellow. Morgan construed the remark according to his own lights, probably thinking that the Count had suspected that his real identity had been discovered. Fenton did not explain. He dared not say that he was virtually sure that the bogus Count Capricorni lay dead in an office on the thirteenth story of the St. Paul building. He wanted to forget what he had seen, at least until he had performed his duty. The reverie it threw him into was broken by Morgan. You see what I was up against. Must have been embarrassing, said Fenton. Embarrassing? Well, I guess. When eleven o'clock came and he hadn't come, I told Marg all about it, and she near went crazy. 
What are we going to do? she said, as if I knew. There we were again without the guest of honor. Hamlet with the prince left out. The place was beginning to fill up, and everybody was asking questions. Well, what did you do? said Fenton, beginning to be amused. Marg was splendid. She took right hold of it. She told me that I'd simply got to get somebody to impersonate the Count, or she would be disgraced forever. And meanwhile she'd tell everybody that the Count had been delayed in Washington, and would arrive at midnight. That would give me an hour to work it out. I confess I was frightened to death. I didn't like to deceive people. But what else could I do? Marg would be insane if I didn't save her reputation. Well, the only person I could think of was Harold Ringrose, a college mate of mine. We often played Bazique together. He's a manufacturing chemist down on Vesey Street. I rung up his house, but they said he was downtown. I tried his office. No answer. There was nothing for me to do but go down there and find him, and try to get him to play the part. I thought I could play the old friendship and family honor strong enough to induce him. He knows hardly anybody, and no one would ever suspect him. So I drove down there. There was a light in the sixth-story window, but I couldn't get any answer to the bell, and after I'd shouted as loud as I dared, a policeman told me to move on. So I drove back, not knowing what to do, till I met you. Morgan suddenly turned and grasped Fenton's arm with both his hands. Do this for me, for heaven's sake, he exclaimed, and weakly burst into tears. God knows I never wanted all this fluff and feathers, he sobbed. I'm a simple man, with simple ways. I don't like fashion and footmen and things. I want to be let alone, only Marguerite. Oh, brace up, old man, Fenton cried heartily. I'll save your face for you. Depend on me. It'll be a good joke on all these snobs. Is everything ready? Yes. Here, we're almost home now. Home. God, I wish I'd never seen Witcherly Court. End of chapter 9